When Lucifer said, oh, look at my, look at my, my beauty and my intelligence. Worship me. His heart was hardened. And Jesus went to Lucifer and he pleaded. He said, God is good. God is great. God is just. Don't turn your heart away from God. But that just made Lucifer angry. And his heart was gone. And Lucifer rebelled. And what do we know? We know that one-third of the angels in heaven aligned with Lucifer. Now, I've heard someone say that this could be millions, if not billions, of angels that were cast out of heaven because they aligned themselves with Lucifer. Have you ever thought, why did God let Lucifer go? Why didn't he just end it there in heaven? And I heard Sean Boonstra give this analogy, and I really like it. My dad's in the audience. This is just an analogy, not true, okay? (laughs) Sorry, Dad, I didn't warn you. But let's pretend I'm a little kid. I'm a little kid and I have a sister. And my sister runs in and she says, Dad, Dad, Dad. Or not Dad. She says, Andy, Andy, Andy. Dad's a tyrant. Dad's mean. And I look at my sister and I go, really? And then Dad, my dad is sitting right there. He hears Bobby. He hears my sister and he takes her outside and he shoots her and he ends her. Ends her life. What am I supposed to think? Do I want to live with with my dad? Do I love my dad? Probably not. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm submitting to Dad. So the same thing holds true in heaven. God's infinite wisdom knows that His plan is, is right. He knows that His law is just. He knows it's going to play out. It's going to be painful until it plays out, but it's going to play out. A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon and its angels, but the dragon lost the battle. It and its angels were forced out of their places in heaven and were thrown down to the earth. Yes, that old snake. And his angels were thrown out of heaven. That snake who fools everyone on earth is known as the devil and as Satan. We know that God created the earth and the heavens. He created Adam. When he created Adam, he said, Adam, everything that your foot touches, you're going to rule over. That means that Adam had the keys to the earth. When Adam was deceived by Satan, Adam gave Satan the keys to the earth. And I think this next story really speaks to the character of Satan. But I'm going to jump to Job. In the beginning of Job, what do we know? The heavenly council is coming together. And then God goes, Satan, where did you come from? And Satan says, oh, I was walking to and fro on the earth. Does that mean Satan's just going for a leisurely walk? Absolutely not. Satan's trying to use the same logic. My foot is touching your earth, your created earth. I own it now. I took it from you. If you remember during the Iraq, well, Iraqi well, uh, war, the Iraqis pulled down the, the statue of Saddam Hussein. And then people started to jump on the statue. And people took their sandal and started to hit the statue. That was a big sign of disrespect. To say, I do not respect this person. And that's what Lucifer was telling God. Satan at this time. This is what Satan was telling God and Jesus. Your creation, I own it. I'm the prince of the whole thing. Can you believe that? And then God goes, no. I still have Job, my servant. How can you be prince of the whole thing if I have Job? Satan says, you only have Job because of your wealth. And God goes, okay. Go take his wealth, but but you can't kill him. Keep him alive. 
So Satan goes down and wreaks havoc. Havoc on Job. His family, his possessions, everything he wreaks havoc upon. But Job never curses God. So Nick's counsel in heaven, Satan's there. And God goes, did you see my servant Job? He never cursed my name. And then Satan goes, yeah, but he has his health. If you take his health away, Lord, he's not your servant. He'll, he'll curse your name. So God says, okay, but don't take his life. So Satan goes down a second time. And he, he inflicts sores from Job's head to his feet. And Job's just in utter pain. But Job doesn't curse God's name. And so I think that speaks to the character of Satan. He's saying, man, I am so jealous. I'm so angry. I want the worship, but I'm not getting the worship. And so I'm going to make anyone suffer. I'm going to bring havoc on anyone that I possibly can, just so me, myself, can get what I want. I think we're going to see me, myself, and that inward worship come into play more and more as we go along within the story. The moon. The moon is gorgeous, right? Why is it gorgeous? It's only gorgeous because it's reflecting the light of the sun. You see, the moon only reflects about 3 to 12% of the sunlight, depending on how it's rotated within the earth. If the moon did not reflect the sunlight, it would be a dark, gloomy, dull orb. We would not take pictures of the moon if it didn't reflect the, the sunlight. And doesn't this represent Satan? Satan is right next to the throne of God. Right there. He's reflecting God's love. Reflecting God's light. And that is what makes Lucifer pretty. But as soon as Lucifer starts focusing inward, as soon as he rejects God's love, he turns into a dark, gloomy, dull orb. And the same thing can be said to our, for ourselves if we start looking inward instead of upward. I just wanted to give an overview. So this is what we're going to talk about. God has always had a plan, and God has always had people. People sharing his name, people spreading his light, people doing his will. And as soon as Satan sees that, Satan's going to create a counterfeit, and he's going to create deceptions, and he's going to create distractions. So right away, we see Abel. Abel provides a sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord. The Lord's happy. Cain... He's jealous of Abel, and he kills him. He's thinking of himself, replicates what we learned of, of, of Satan. God has faithful people, and those faithful people are dwindling down and down and down. So he says, you know what? I'm going to have a chosen nation. That nation is going to represent me. When people see that nation, they're going to think of me and know of my glory and my love. And so what does Satan do? He creates a rebellious nation. Hittites, angry, people are afraid of him. The Amorites, they speak proudly. They're, they're arrogant. And the Canaanites, they're greedy. They, they love their wealth. And nothing else matters. Then, Christ comes. Dies on the cross for us. The old way's out. The church is established. And so now, the apostles are spreading the word of God. And it's spreading like wildfire. And Satan has to be panicking. He has to go, oh no. Look at all the hearts I'm losing. Look how many people are flocking to my enemy, Jesus. What do I do? So he has to create the apostate church and the papacy. But let's start at the very beginning of what we know are symbols of worship. Who knows when the first altar is mentioned in the Bible? 
I thought it was Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel says that they offered an offering. The first time altar is mentioned in the Bible is with Noah. And I thought the picture would give it away, so I'm a little disappointed in everybody. (laughs) So if we remember, Noah gets off the ark. Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives, and all the animals exit the ark. And in gratitude, Noah creates an altar. And he takes uh, an animal that has already been, been predetermined that it's going to be a sacrifice, and he lays it on the altar, and the Lord is pleased. The Lord puts a rainbow in the sky, and he says, Jonah, not Jonah, Noah, <laughs> Noah, I am pleased. Never again will I destroy the earth with everything in it. So this is our beginning of worship. This is the beginning of a, a symbol of worship, the altar, and the altar has a lot of meaning to it. So what is an altar? Well, the very simplistic form is, is it's a raised platform in which we put a sacrifice to someone or something. And this sacrifice, this altar, was actually a prophecy for things to come. And what did Satan do? He started using altars. Let's sacrifice and have sacrifices to our pagan idols, our pagan gods. And it just created confusion and distraction. We see many stories in the Bible and the Old Testament of altars being used. When God does something significant, they build an altar. So when they go by it, it's in remembrance of what God did for them. One of my most favorite stories about an altar is about Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham... Here's God. God says, Abraham, Abraham, my servant. And Abraham says, yes, God. And God says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac. You don't know where you're going, but I want you to go to a mountain. I'll show you which mountain. And I want you to climb the mountain, build an altar, and sacrifice your one and only beloved son. And Abraham doesn't go, what? You're crazy. No way. I'm not going to do that. Abraham says, yes, Lord. And Abraham gets Isaac, and they go on a journey, and they don't know where they're going, but they're following God. And they're gone for three days. So I think if you're, if you're going for a journey, and you're gone, and you, you don't know where you're going, you're lost for three days. So really, I think Abraham is lost for three days. And I think this, we're going to hear this number again throughout the story. So remember, three days being lost. And they finally found, found the mountain, and they climb the mountain, and Abraham builds an altar and puts the wood on, and he looks at Isaac. And he picks up Isaac, and he brings him to the altar, and lays him on the altar, pulls out his knife, and puts his knife above his head. And the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, no, you've been proven faithful. You don't have to go through it. And is God mean for doing this? Ah, No. I thought about this. I said, if God asked me to take one of my kids and go through this, I would now be Jonah, the one that runs and a fish would have to swallow. God was trying to give us a story that we relate to. God was trying to give us a prophecy of what he himself did with his only beloved son, but this time he didn't stop the sacrifice. This time he allowed his son Jesus to die on the cross, to come to this world and our sins is what put the nails in them. And so, no, I don't think God's mean. I think God gave us a story that we can relate to. As parents, as kids, as grandparents, we can all relate to this story. We move from the altar, and now we go to the tabernacle, the sanctuary. 
You see, the sanctuary is a complete system. It's a complete system because all it does is point to Jesus. That's all it does. And the Israelites, if you remember, they're in the wilderness. They're walking around. They're angry. They're confused. They're they're complaining. Moses is getting angry. Moses, Moses hits the rock to get water. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a copy, a shadow of heavenly, heavenly things. This is my design, not Moses' design. This is not the Israelites' design. This is God's design. And I want it put in the central location of your camp. God was literally in the center of the Israelites' camp with the sanctuary. I think it's important to go through the different parts of the sanctuary and understand it. How many doors are there to enter the sanctuary? Just one door. There's only one way to get into heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. The door is facing east. What does east represent? It represents the rising sun. Christ rose from the grave and became our Savior. Christ rose from earth to heaven and became our high priest. As soon as you go into the outer courtyard, you come to the altar of burnt offerings. This is where you would place your hands over the lamb and you would confess your sins and your sins would leave you and go on to the lamb. You would place your sins on the lamb. The lamb would be placed on the altar and sacrificed. The lamb took your sins and died on your behalf so you didn't have to. The wages of sin is death. What does this point to? This points to the cross. The lamb is Jesus. Jesus died on our behalf. We cast our sins upon Jesus. The next is a laver. The laver is the, is the cleansing bowl. Before you go into the, into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, you need to be cleansed. So um, the cleansing represents the cleansing blood of Christ. And now once you're in the, the tabernacle, you're in the presence of God. The menorah, or the seven-branch candlestick. That's the only light in the whole tent. The light is Jesus. Jesus is our light. The table of shrew bread has 12 loaves of bread. Bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Are we catching a theme? Everything relates to Jesus. Altar of incense. It, it offered a sweet smell incense. The smoke would loft to the ceiling, and it would go over the veil into the Ark of Covenant. This represents our prayers going into the holy, holiness of God through Jesus Christ. We had the veil. The veil was separation. It was separation between us and God. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, that separation was removed and the veil was torn. The Ark of the Covenant. I think this is pretty cool. This is the shadow. It's a copy of the throne in heaven. God would guide the Israelites either through a a cloud by day or by a fire by night. And then when they camped, the presence of God would go and sit on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the whole thing is a straight line. From entrance to end, it's a straight line to get to God. All we need is Jesus. Jesus provides everything we need to get to God. And that's what the sanctuary is saying. Uh, about six years ago, I lived in Florida, and Hannah was pregnant. She was really pregnant. We were about ready to have our first kid, Emma. And I remember H- H- Hannah just got on maternity leave, and we only had a few days. We had a scheduled day for inducement. 
And we were so excited. We were planning to do the baby's room, and there's so much that we were doing. We kept imagining, what is it going to be like? What are we going to do, and what are we going to show Emma when we bring her home? Our house was just bubbling with excitement and with happiness. Well, shortly after she took the maternity leave, our dog ran away. We looked inside, we looked outside, we ran to the neighbors, we looked everywhere, shouting, Maggie, 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 where are you? We couldn't find her. We posted signs. I remember just spending hours walking around, screaming her name. The happiness and the excitement within our house churned. It was gloomy. And we tried to get ourselves out of it. We said, we have to be excited. Our first daughter's coming. How can we bring her into a sad house? Every time we tried to turn it around and be happy, we couldn't. We just missed our dog so much. I remember thinking, you know, if I go for a run and I work up a real big sweat and I get a big stench on my shirt and I put it out, Maggie's a beagle. She should, she should, should smell my, my smell. And it was Florida, so it wasn't very hard to get a stench. So I ran. I put my shirt out on the, the back porch. And in the morning, I came out, Maggie, Maggie, Maggie. No dog. It was getting to the point where he said, okay, something happened to Maggie. She's not coming back. And I remember going to work, getting in my car, and it's just like, ah, what am I doing? I'm depressed. I'm not happy. I'm going to have a kid soon, but I'm still not happy. And I got into my car, and I left the neighborhood. And I see this car driving up real slow. And I wonder, why is he going so slow? And I look in front of the car, and there's a dog. And it took a while for me to recognize, but that was my dog. And I don't even know what I did with the car. Who knows? I put it in park somewhere, ran out to Maggie, and I said, Maggie! And she ran up to me, and I let her give her kisses. And that was the only time I've ever, ever let her kiss me, because it's gross. Her, bat, her breath is bad. And I let her give me kisses, and I put her in the car, and I started driving home, and I called Hannah, and I said, Hannah, we found Maggie. And she's like, how? I said, I don't know. As we got home and we were all hugging and finally our house turned to joy, excitement, and happiness again. And this is what I think heaven is going through. All of the angels, God and Jesus, are looking down and they're saying, why are they not following our signs? Why are they not loving me? Why are they turning to self? Don't they know that's going to be only ruin? And heaven, which used to be perfect harmony, went through a civil, civil war that's still unended. And they're waiting for, for us. They're waiting for us to come home. And I feel like that, that feeling that Hannah and I felt waiting for Maggie represented what heaven is going through. So we move from the tabernacle to the temple. So the, the Israelite, Israelites have now conquered their land. They've settled. And now they need a permanent location. So the temple was built, same setup as the tabernacle. Now it's a permanent location. And people are coming all over. This is Solomon's temple. It is impressive. It's a wonder of the world. People are coming over and seeing it. And finally, God is being displayed the way that God needs to be displayed. And you've got to think, Satan has to be panicking here. He's like, uh-oh, not again. I can't let this temple show that God is good. So what does he do? He has to break Israel apart. Jeroboam. Jeroboam gets a message from God. God says, Jeroboam, you're going to be king of ten tribes of Israel. You're going to lead them to destruction and they're all going to die. And Jeroboam gets scared. Solomon hears of this prophecy in 
Jeroboam flees to Egypt. After Solomon dies and his king is son, Jeroboam comes back. And guess what? Jeroboam became king of ten tribes of Israel. Now, we have Israel, we have Judea. Judah. <laughs> uh, Jerusalem is in Judah. And so when the Israelites are going to Judah, to Jerusalem, to the temple, Jeroboam starts to freak out. He goes, if they see this temple, they're going to want to follow the king of Judah, and then they're going to come back and kill me. So what am I going to do? What is my only option? I got to create my own temple. And so Jeroboam creates golden calves, and he puts them on either end of his kingdom. And he tells the people, there's no need to go to the temple anymore. Worship these calves, because these calves brought you out of Egypt. And so he actually recreates God's festivals for these calves. They're, burnt, they're, um, they're offering sacrifices to these calves. And so create, uh, Satan now has a deception. He has a play within Israel. Israel has left God. Israel is now following golden calves. And so Israel becomes an enemy of Judah. And Judah starts going to the temple treasury. And they're paying allies money from the temple, from God's money, to say, hey, you've got to help me with Israel. You've got to help defend me from Israel. And so now you have a play where Judah stops following God. You have kings of Judah who brought in pagan idols into the temple. You have kings of Judah who offered their son as a sacrifice. You have kings of Judah who took the real burnt uh, offering, the, the real sacrifice, the, the altar of burnt offering, and he made it a replica, took the real one to his own use and said, only I can use this one. What is he saying there? Only I am worthy of salvation. Who does that remind you of? So now God's chosen nation has gone astray. God's chosen nation is distracted. Really, it's dysfunctional. God can't let this continue. He can't let this be a reflection on him. So we learn from Ellen White, through the teachings of the sacrificial service, Christ was able to be uplifted before, before all nations. And all who would look to him should live. Christ was the foundation of the Jewish economy. The whole system of types and symbols was a compacted prophecy of the gospel, a presentation in which were bound up the promises of redemption. But the people of Israel lost sight of their high privileges as God's representatives. They forgot God and failed to fulfill their holy mission. The blessings they received brought no blessings to the world. All their advantages they appropriated for their own glorification. They shut themselves away from the world in order to escape temptation. They robbed God of the service he required of them. And they robbed their fellow man of religious guidance and holy example. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Could we, as Seventh-day Adventists, be doing something similar? Something, that, something to think about. It was 1986, and a mechanical engineer was going over a plan of action for the next day. And he saw a flaw. And so he went to his manager and he said, something dis disastrous is going to happen if we don't stop the plan. People are going to die. It will result in human loss. 
And so the manager dismissed it. So the mechanical engineer got four other engineers to look at it, and they said, oh, yeah, we have a problem. You should delay. Otherwise, there's going to be a disaster. And NASA managers denied it. They dismissed it. They said, no worry. We don't think there's a problem. We're going to continue. January 28, 1986, the Challenger shuttle was launched. 73 seconds, everything was fine. No issues. The 74th second, the, the shuttle blew up, causing the life to end for seven astronauts. Why in the world did the managers not heed the advice, the warning? Well, isn't the same thing for the Israels, Israelites? Why did they not heed the advice and the warning? Why do we not heed the advice and the warning? I know that if I go to Taco Bell, I'm just going to expand my waistline. That doesn't stop me. I'm a patron at Taco Bell, unfortunately. Sometimes they know my name. I know that if I sit and watch TV, that it's just going to bring laziness and gluttoniness. I'm going to put files into my brain that I don't need to have. Does it stop me? There's warnings everywhere, but am I heeding those warnings? Can I really call the NASA managers foolish if I'm doing the same thing? So I want to skip forward. We don't know too many stories of when Jesus was a little boy. We know that Jesus was born as a baby without knowledge, similar to you and me. We know that when he was 12, he went with his family to the temple for Passover. And that Passover, it doesn't say this, but I've heard people, people go through this analogy, and I think it would be true. But he's at the temple, he's at Passover, and I think this is where he learns that he's the Messiah, that it's his destiny. Think about this. So he's lost for three days. Have we heard that before? He's lost for three days before he's found. And one of the popular scriptures to go over during Passover is Isaiah. And one of the most favorite uh, passages in Isaiah is the servant, the suffering servant. And I think at the age of 12, Jesus could be reading these these scriptures and learning what, what it says about him. He was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. We despised him and said, he's a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain. But we thought his suffering was a punishment from God. He was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. He was painfully abused, but he did not complain. He was silent like a lamb being led to the butcher, as quiet as a sheep having his wool cut off. He was condemned to death without a fair trial. By suffering, the servant will learn the true meaning of obeying the Lord. Although he is innocent, he will take the punishment for the sins of others so that many of them will no longer be guilty. The Lord will reward him with honor and power for sacrificing his life. Others thought he was a sinner. But he suffered for our sins and asked God to forgive us. At the age of 12, could you think about reading that and go, oh, that's my destiny? destiny? That's what I'm going to have to do? I think that's pretty powerful. We're now at the cross, at victory. What does this mean for us? I'm going to go to the notes. I want to get this right. The old priest requirement was set aside because it was, a, it was weak and useless. God said to Jesus, 
you are a priest forever. Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system. Death prevented them from remaining in office. But Jesus lives forever. His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to him through God. Come to God through him, sorry. So we've gone through the altar, the tabernacle, the temple, and now we're at the church. Through Christ, he created the church. So remember, the veil is ripped. Now we have direct access to God. I have a couple pleas. We've gone through how Satan has deceived and distracted many people. And God knows that if you're trying to be the light of the world, if you're trying to represent God, he's going to attack you. Be on guard. Know what's from Satan. When Godfrey asked me to do this, I said, oh, there's no way. How could I do this? And I realized that was not God telling me I can't do this. That was Satan. Don't fall for the deceptions. The Greek word for church is ecclesia. That means to come out from and go to. God is calling us to come out from the darkness. Come out from self and go into the light. Go into his word. Doug Batchelor said this, and I think it's really true. It would be a miserable life to be a church member who goes to church every day, but never opens their Bible, never prays. Because you have such a responsibility on our shoulders. We're being called to be the light of our community, the light of the world. But how can you do that if you never open the Bible? How can you do that if you've never prayed to God? I want to end with... Ellen White. Ellen White had almost 2,000 visions. Her first vision, I think, is really, really awesome. There was a narrow path that was cast above the world. The path led to a city. The people traveling on the path were safe if they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus. Some grew tired on their journey and thought they should have reached the city already. Jesus was trying to encourage them, and he offered them even more light to see the path. Others rashly denied the light, and their path went perfectly dark. They stumbled, and they lost sight of Jesus, and they fell off the path into the wicked world below. Those that kept their eyes on Jesus entered the cloud and received crowns, harps of gold, palms of victory. Jesus raised his mighty arm, and he laid hold to the pearly gate and swung it open. And he said, You have washed your robes in my blood, stood stiffly in my truth, enter in. You see, all we need to do to enter the gates is to fix our eyes upward, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I used my notes three times. I'm so thankful that you helped me get through this, and I just hope that I was able to speak your word. We're so thankful for your Sabbath day, and we ask that we can keep our eyes on you. We ask that you give us wisdom and peace, and we just want to thank you for giving us your son. In your name, amen.